was for me. <coughs> that was a, appreciate that. No, no, that's that's pity clapping. That's not the same. There was in the prayer guide or whatever, it looked like I had the flu. I never had the flu, so you didn't have to get those bottles of Germex out after I shook your hand. Uh, my grandchildren had the flu, so that was what the prayer request was. Our, our home was contaminated, but uh, I shielded myself. I wouldn't kiss them, touch them, hug them, anything. Uh, for, no, I'm kidding. That, uh, for that period of time. God protected Kim and me. I was very, very grateful for that. Now, my son-in-law here, he had the flu. Don't touch him. Uh, he's diseased. Uh, not the one playing the piano, so... Both my son-in-laws are here this morning, my daughters, my son. Uh, I have one um, child and his wife and grandson who have never been here. Uh, we don't like them. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no. He's an associate pastor. His church is very picky about him being there every week. Um, but uh, anyway, we're hopefully... I, you know, that's a hard thing to say. I don't hope that one day he loses that job and can come here, uh, but uh, we uh, are grateful for the ones who are able to be here on Sunday morning. He has been here to visit. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get to introduce you sometime. He basically is me without facial hair, so uh, it's pretty much, that's about the long and the short of it. We've been in a, a series called Stewards, Not Owners. This is the last week of that series. So if you say, when is this guy going to stop talking about giving, this is that Sunday. Uh, and we, I mentioned when we first started, four weeks out of the year, uh, a predetermined set of weeks at the first of the year where we talk about giving so that you understand we are not trying to raise money. We're not trying to get you to give more money. We are trying to teach you what God's Word says about us being good stewards, just helping us to understand what Jesus teaches us about that we are not owners of the things that we have, but we are stewards over it and how to be faithful stewards of the things he has entrusted to us and, and to connect for us that that is, that is how we get the best life that we can have. And, and we pointed out that we're, we're trying to encourage people in moving towards more faithful stewardship to that there are five or different stations and, and you start here with a person who's never given anything and then here you have a person who has given something, maybe just one time gift and then you have people who give regularly, who give $50, $20 here and there but on a consistent basis and then you have people who are tithing uh, and that's when you give 10% of the first fruits of your income and then you have people who tithe and give above and beyond their tithe. Randy, Brother Randy mentioned in our staff meeting, he says, I'm glad you don't go any further than that or you'll fall off the edge. And that's what happens. If you give more than your tithe and additional offerings, you just go to glory. Um, but, uh, but all we're trying to encourage people in moving closer to where Christ would have us to be, because I do believe God's word clearly teaches that he would, rather, that he would love for us all to be at a place in being stewards of his resources where we give the 10% that he asked for, but then we give above and beyond that just because we know out of the, that we give out of the abundance of the blessing we've received. And so, but if you are struggling to get to that point, just try to move to one place. If you haven't ever given, try to become a person who gives for the first time. If you've given before but you don't give regularly, try to become a person who gives regularly. If you give regularly, try to then move to a person who tithes. Each one of those requires a step of faith. And then if you are a tither, then move to a place where you give above and beyond that. And there are countless stories of people who have done that and practiced that and, and, and they're amazing testimonies of how God blesses them as a result of that giving. And it's not a natural uh, thing that, uh, that if you give $5, you get $10 back or you get $50 back. It's about when you are a steward of God's resources, it means when you invest into his kingdom, there is a return on that investment. That means God does what he intends to do to accomplish his purposes. He takes your gift. And we've used as an illustration before the boy who gave his five loaves and two fish and gave it to Jesus. And Jesus fed thousands of people with it. He got to eat that day, but he didn't walk away with hundreds of fish. He didn't go home and say, Mom, look what I got. I gave my fish to Jesus, and I got 3,000 fish in return. He didn't do that. No, Jesus fed everybody. He just got to eat too. 
so he gave what he had to Jesus, and Jesus took it and multiplied it and did amazing things. It becomes something great for the kingdom. No deposit, no return is our title of our message this morning. I don't know if you, um, if you ever remember uh, when you used to, I remember we used to buy our, we used to drink Pepsi-Cola, and my mom would buy an eight-pack of 16-ounce bottles, and she would bring that home, and he had to use a bottle opener. I don't know if you know what those are, uh, if you're under the age of 30. And uh, you don't, you didn't, you couldn't twist them off. I wouldn't try that. That would be very difficult. Uh, but they just, you had a bottle opener. Every home had a bottle opener, uh, and uh, even restaurants had bottle openers, which was crazy. But the we used bottle openers, and after you drank all those, after you emptied the bottle out, you put it into back into the carton, and you took it back to the grocery store, and they gave you a return. Uh, because when you bought it, you didn't realize this, but you were paying a deposit, and then when you returned the bottles, you got it back. Now, when we moved to Oregon, they still have that policy on all their bottles and plastic bottles and so forth. And so uh, you don't just throw, when people visit you and you live in Oregon, you freak out when they start throwing stuff away. It's like, no! There's money in the trash can. Uh, and so when you go out and see people on the side of the road collecting cans, they're getting real money for that stuff, uh, like a nickel or 10 cents a, a bottle or whatever it is. But that's the point is when you buy the drinks, you pay it a deposit, and then you get a return on it. And then they came out with what was called the disposable bottle that said there were uh, there's no deposit. You don't pay a deposit on it, and it's not refillable. You just throw it away when you're done. That. I don't know if you know that or not, that pretty much changed our whole world, and we didn't even pay attention to it. But now we drink things and we just throw stuff away, except for you recycling people who realize that we're destroying the planet with all our trash and so forth. The, uh, but we drink it, throw it away. There's an illustration in there for us, though, in that with God's people, we are people who God pours into and whatever we use, he refills. And whatever we give, he gives back. And, and we are people who give to him and he returns that. There is a return on that investment. Now this isn't like a, um, what is it, name it and claim it preacher type message or whatever. It's just an understanding of how stewardship works. And the, and the principle of God's stewardship is, is we take what he gives us, we give it to him. Just as Christ laid down his life, God took the life that he laid down and did great things with it. He accomplished things with a kingdom purpose. I think our prosperity gospel that's gone out there, the damage that it's done is has taken away our, our understanding of what a kingdom mentality is. Because in a kingdom mentality, I can give up my life and never see prosperity in this lifetime. I could be poor my entire life here. I could be I could suffer my entire life here. Yet I believe that because if I if that if when I give my life to God that he takes that suffering and that sacrifice and he makes amazing things happen out of it from a kingdom perspective. And my reward will be in heaven that I get to enjoy that for all eternity. So that's there is a prosperity component to it, but it is not necessarily in this life. And that's not to say that God hasn't blessed certain people with abundant resources and so forth, but it's not the principle. The principle that Jesus laid down is that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Those who realize that I don't need to accumulate wealth in this world. I can give everything I have away and not try to pray or give to my selfish desires. But what's happened in our world is people, when you take God out of the equation, we've made our lives disposable. We've made our lives where we use all that we have inside, and then that's it. And becoming this disposable culture has had this influence on our children and our grandchildren and, and new generations of people who are just simply living their lives for the moment and then believe there's nothing after that. And that is such a sad thing. In the next week, we start a Who's Your One campaign. We begin talking about how to share the gospel with the world around us. And this is a great transitional message for that. Because understanding that my life is valuable, that the king, that kingdom people, the people within the body of Christ, when we think of our lives as meaningful, that our lives matter, that what I have and how I use it 
is important, then we understand that there is, that by giving it, by making that deposit, that there is a return on that, that there is value in me, that I am not just disposable, that I'm not just something to be thrown away, that my life has value. And we are wanting to communicate that message to others. We're specifically looking for people who do not value their lives, who live as though what they have and who they are doesn't really matter. And so they just do whatever they want and live however they want. And we want to share the gospel that God created you to matter, that you are important, that you do have value. One of the best illustrations of that I ever had was um, when John F. Kennedy's golf clubs went up for auction at Christie's, I think it's a great auction house or whatever, that auctions off expensive things. They sold, and I don't have these stats in front of me, so just, these are just general figures. Don't Google this. You can Google it if you want. But it was like 6 or $7 million. It's a lot of money for golf clubs. And, and I always point out, you know, I'd ask people, how much are those golf clubs really worth? When I do small group studies, I would ask people that question. And people say, oh, they're probably not worth this or that. And I said, they're worth $7 million. And I said, you know why I know they're worth that? Because somebody paid that for them. Our value is what somebody pays for us. Our value is what somebody gives us. And Jesus determines our value. He has deposited into your life his life. And so he has determined that your value, God has said, you are, this is your worth. You are worth the life of my son. You are worth the life of the Son of God. That means everyone has incredible intrinsic value. And so don't ever think you are worthless or that your life is worthless or that you're disposable because God has established your worth and it is a great worth. Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, probably one of the most popular passages on giving that we have because he really is direct. Malachi chapter 3 verse 7 says this. Since the days of your fathers you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Pray with me. Father, we just thank you, God, for how great and amazing you are, how powerful your word is. Thank you, Father, that you have given us value. You have valued us to the point where you sacrificed yourself for us. So when you call for our sacrifice, you are just simply trying to teach us to love others as you have loved us, to show that others are worth our lives because they were worth your life. They are also worth our life. And by each of us laying down our lives for others, we show the power of the gospel. Lord, you take that gift, you take that sacrifice, and you use it to carry out your will, to bring about your purposes, which is the redemption of mankind. So Lord, teach us. Teach us how to give, believing, Lord, in your ability to take that gift and do amazing things with it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we're going to focus on as we, again, transition out of this series is this question. Why are we not growing? Now, that is an individual question. That is a family question. That's me personally, spiritually. That's us as a church. If you ever ask the question, why are we not growing? I, I bring it up because I, I get asked that from time to time, that when you hire a new preacher, you bring him in and you think, um, 
well, we want to get, we're, we were here and we've declined and now we get this guy and we're going to come back and get to this level. I studied most of my seminary time and training and, and um, education was in church growth and understanding why churches grow, why they don't grow and so forth. And so it is a very good question. Why are we not growing? And for those who are in the know, I guess you already you kind of realize things like this take time. You have to develop infrastructure. You rearrange things, do things, and there's a time possible decline, and then and then hopefully growth after that. But that's not a given. It's not a guarantee. An interesting thing, though, is that when you study church growth, and there's been so much research done, so many churches where they examine what are the factors of growth and so forth, and there's variances in all types of things except for one thing. There is one thing that all churches who grow have in common. And it, the really crazy part is, is churches that don't grow do not have these factors. And all churches that do grow do have these factors. So when you have something that that, that that happens every time, it's worth paying attention to. And here are the two things that every church that grows has. They have high expectations of their members. And they give a high amount of freedom for people to do ministry. In every church that's growing, you will find those two factors present. And when those two factors are not present, churches will plateau or decline. And when you break that down a little bit, here's, here's really all it's saying. When you expect people to follow... Now these were, uh, in fairness, these were surveys done in biblically-based evangelical churches. Meaning there are other churches who get people to grow or get congregations to grow in other ways. But when we, we said we're going to just look at churches that are biblically based and evangelical so that we at least have some common ground here. Because I'm sure there, if you offer people obviously free pizza every week, then maybe you could get a lot of people to come on a regular basis. And there's an old saying, however you get people is however you keep people. So, uh, but, if you, but if you're going to be biblically, just a biblical fellowship and looking at what God does, those are the two things. Now, the high expectations means this. It means that we hold people accountable to God's word. It means we believe that God's word is true and that we expect people to follow it. It means that when you put in membership classes and, and say we, we, we expect people, they're going to be part of our church, that we, we want them to understand the word, attend church, and, and be involved in ministry. We want them, everybody to believe they are a minister, they have a calling, something that God wants them to do, and, and hold them to that expectation. And then give them the freedom to do that. Let me kind of show you how that doesn't happen. How that doesn't happen is when you and I do not obey what God's word has to say. And, no, and there's no accountability for that. And it happens, uh, the negative part of that is when we say, when you say, I believe God is moving in me to do this. And we say, well, we don't have a place for that. We can't equip you for that. We can't train you for that. And these are all the ministers we have. And if you don't fit into these, these pegs, then you're out of luck. But when you say, when you look and believe that God, when you are trying to teach someone to follow God's word and be faithful to study God's word, and then out of that study of God's word and that knowledge, that walking and faithfulness to Him, they discover that this is what God has blessed them, this is how God has gifted them, then you want to give them the opportunities to serve. You want to give them the opportunities to do what it is God created them to do and give them a high amount of freedom in order to do that. That is not the only reason why churches don't grow. But um, I was having this conversation with a friend a couple weeks ago. There was a guy named uh, Ken, Ken Hempel who ran for president of the SBC a couple of years ago. And he was a professor of mine and, and one of my favorite professors because he was the kind of professor who said, hey, while we are in class together, you have full access to me. So I want to I give you not just what you learn in class. I want to give you everything I can give you in this allotted amount of time. So I, if you want to eat lunch with me, I'll eat lunch with you. If you want to spend time with me, I'll spend time with you. I just want to pour into you everything I have in it. And I took advantage of that. He's a really amazing, insightful person, pastor of a very large church, and, uh, and, had, and saw God do some amazing things. And one of the things that he... One of the things that he taught was this bonsai theory of church growth. And, and, uh, and the bonsai theory of church growth was this. It was that we don't... Um, a bonsai tree, I don't know if you've ever watched Karate Kid, um, but uh, in Karate Kid, uh, the guy, uh, what's his name, the old guy, Mr. Miyagi, 
Mr. Miyagi uh, was had a little bonsai trees. I didn't know this. You can bonsai any tree, any tree of any species. They're like bonsai orange trees that you literally can get them to grow this big and produce little tiny oranges. I've not tried it, but I've been told. And so, and the way you do it is you carefully clip and prune and so forth. And there's a way to keep those trees from ever growing to their full potential to keep them small. And this is what he proposed. God grows churches. They have a natural growth pattern that God just simply wants his churches to grow and expand. We as the people of God keep them from growing. We work very hard to keep them small. And, and so part of understanding church growth is when you come into churches, you just simply try to identify not how to make them grow, but how to, to remove the things that are hindering them from growing, that are hindering them from growing. And so that's the nature of everything that we do is simply, and, and here's what you're, all you're doing is simply proclaiming the word, asking people to be obedient, and then identifying the places where we're not obedient. This is not new. This is what God's people, this was the struggle. They were, they were failing and, and suffering and going through persecution and judgment all through the Old Testament, God's people were. And then God sends the prophet Malachi to point out to them why things were not so good. And in verse 7, he says, Since the days of your fathers, I mean, you've been doing this for a while, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. This is what he's saying. He's saying you're not experiencing victory, and you've been not, and you haven't been experiencing victory for a long time. You haven't had these amazing moments where the enemies of God have come against us, and we've had these incredible victories, and you've not had it for a long time. And here's the reason: you haven't been obeying my statutes. I told you when you obey me, when I tell you to do this and you do it, then I will do great things. A very simple equation. We obey God. God does great things. And he says, yet you ask, how can we return? And he points out this. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? And, And he's just pointing out that this is not something that is obvious to them. First they're saying, what are we doing wrong? Which means, this implies, they think they're doing everything they need to be doing. And yet he puts his finger on something and says, you're not. He says, let me, let me ask you, he says, will a man rob God? And they're like, well, of course not. A man shouldn't rob God. And the natural question is, is how do we rob you? And this is what he says. By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. I Meaning he commanded them to give to the temple... 10% and to make the contributions that were necessary in order to do what it was that God called them to do in order to in order to show again that they were not owners but stewards of the resources of God. And then verse 9 he says you are suffering under a curse yet you the whole nation are still robbing me. This the problem in the Old Testament with the people of Israel was is they couldn't connect all the things that were happening to them that weren't good with that they were not being faithful to do what it was God would have them to do. And that is still the case today. In our homes, in our individual lives, in our families' lives, in the lives of our churches, not just this church, but all churches, we have a hard time understanding that when things, when God is not accomplishing His purposes and plans, that it is tied to some area of disobedience. Now, it doesn't mean that you are being disobedient. It means somebody is being disobedient. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament again, when the nation of Israel failed to succeed in, in, in the victory, they could identify disobedience sometimes in just one family. And you would think, how, why would that even be important? But God says, it's, I, I want all of you to be on the same page. This is a, you as a nation. And then you might think, well, that's Old Testament. It has nothing to do with the church. Well, then you go forward to the church. And in the early church, there was this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. 
and they lied about their gift. And they were confronted about their lying about the gift, and God killed them. Now, if there's ever a story for a preacher to use to encourage people to give, that's a good one. You don't give today what God wants you to give, or you lie about your gift, then the deacons will carry your dead body out of the building after we're over. Put a little fear in you, whatever. But the point was, is that God was trying to say that it's super important, not that everybody gave, but they didn't lie about their gift. Absolutely, you don't want to be lying about it or deceiving people about it. That was the... That was the worst part, is that they were trying to make people believe one thing when they were doing something else. And he was trying to protect the purity and integrity of the church. And this is what we need to do in response. We need to identify anything God desires that we've withheld. Identify anything that God desires that we've withheld. That means just thinking through. God... You know, if if you if we're not where we believe we need to be, and and we and we aren't, I'm just going to tell you, I'm I'm not satisfied. If there are empty chairs in this room, I'm not satisfied if we don't have two or three services or four services. Because the reason is, is because I was looking. Somebody else did the stats for me this time. I was reading an article. Uh, they were saying there are 53,000 people. Cape Girardeau County that are unchurched. 53,000. This room holds 300. So if we are not filling a room of 300, there's plenty of people out there. So why aren't they here? Why aren't they here? God wants them to hear His Word. God wants to explain. Not everybody's going to respond to the Gospel, but I... I, this was a statistic that was given me years ago that when they surveyed people in the community and said, would you go to church if you were asked? That was just a simple question. Would you go to church if someone invited you to church? 80% of the people asked that question said yes. That's crazy, isn't it? 80% said I would go if somebody invited me to go. So that means if you go to 53,000 people and ask them to come, then 80% of them said they would, at least for a Sunday. We could fill the room, I think, with 80% of 50,000 people. A few times. So when we are wondering, questioning, why, why are we not seeing this growth? Why are we not seeing people pouring in and lives being changed and at least people coming to hear the word if even one time? And the question has to be, well, let, let me make sure, let me make sure that I everything that God is asking of me, I'm giving that to him. Now, this is not me speaking in your life. This is just a moment to take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to say, God, is there anything I'm holding back? Is there anything you're asking of me? Am I giving what you want me to give? Am I giving it where you want me to give it? Am I handling the resources you've entrusted to me in a way that's pleasing to you? Is my time and my money, is it being handled in a way that you want it to be handled? If the answer is no, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, that I, uh, I have, you should have a checklist of when God's not doing things, and, it, and if you... Once you get to a no answer that I'm not doing this, you don't have to keep going. You know, it's like if I feel bad, I ask myself the question, have I been eating right? That's one of the first questions I have. The next question is, have I been sleeping right? Have I been sleeping well? If I answer no to those first two questions, why keep going? Because that's why that, I had to fix that first. I have to be eating right. And usually the eating right question gets me every time, you know? It's like, I don't feel so well. You know, maybe it's cancer or it could be the four dozen Krispy Kreme donuts I ate last night. One of those two. What is it? I feel like there's a tumor in my digestive system. Just once you get to that, and once you get on that checklist, I'm being disobedient. Then you have removed that. That is God says this is the thing. Identify that you're suffering because of your disobedience. Repent. Be obedient. So identify thing, anything God desires that you've withheld. 
And it could just be, it could be something that, uh, like I said, it could be your time, you're spending your time doing this, and God doesn't want you to spend your time doing that. It could be a habitual sin. It could be uh, something you're doing at work, or, or something that you are not doing at work that you should be doing. Whatever it is, I won't try to fill in the blank for you, because God will fill, God does a good job of filling in the blanks. But identify anything God desires you withheld, and I should have added this, and give it to him. Give it to him. Give him what he asks. Second thing, are you willing to risk it all for Jesus? Are you willing to risk it all for Jesus? When we are called to follow Christ, he is going to ask you, just as he does his disciples in the New Testament, to lay something down, to give up something in order to follow him. And what they discovered is he didn't just ask them to give up something. He asked them to give up everything. And you are trusting. You are, they're tr- it's like if I, if I give this up, then what, how am I going to be taken care of? How am I going to make it? How am I going to survive? And Jesus is saying, that's the risk. You're risking not being able to survive, that I can't take care of you. That's your risk. Your risk is that I won't provide for you. Your risk is that I won't accomplish what I want to do. That it, your risk is that I'm not God. And so when you say, I believe you are God, then there's no, I mean, the risk is that you're wrong. And that has been the case for 2,000 years. Everybody who follows Christ has to put their faith in Jesus, that he is who he says he is, that he can provide, that he is. Uh, we were talking again in Sunday school this morning, but he's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He is the resurrection of life. So if I believe those things, if I believe he is, then I believe he can provide everything I need to eat, everything I need to wear, that he can, he'll, he'll open up every opportunity I need to have open up. And if I should die doing it, he has the ability to resurrect me from the dead, give me a new body, and take care of me for all eternity. The risk is, is that none of that's true, and you'll have wasted this life for nothing. Now, there's something called Pascal's Wager, and Pascal's Wager was this. He said, even if there's an infinitesimally small chance that Jesus is right, nothing is much bigger than that, but he said, even if it's infinitesimally small, he said, if there is no God, there is absolutely zero chance of you being resurrected from the dead. He said, so would you not rather invest or take the risk that there's a possibility that Jesus is right versus believing there's no God when you absolutely know there's no hope in that? Well, just a philosophical wager there, but here's the thing. Whatever you do, if you're going to follow Christ, it's going to require a step of faith. Again, I keep highlighting my Sunday school class. You really should be in my Sunday school class because then you get all this ahead of time. And uh, people in my Sunday school class are going, I don't know why I stayed for the sermon. This is a, uh, I got all this this morning. But we were also talking about how the children of Israel, when they came to the Jordan River and they were carrying the ark, that God said, when you step out onto the water, I will cause the waters to depart and you'll be able to cross the Jordan into the promised land. Now, if you want to know something about the Ark of the Covenant, if you touch it, you die. So that's it's a pretty serious thing here. So you don't want to you don't want to stumble and try to catch it or whatever. It's very, very carefully carried and so forth. You can't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And so they're carrying it and they're gonna walk across a river and God says, I'm not gonna take the water away till you take that first step. So that isn't that faith in a nutshell and that's how he operates you're saying well God I will give when you work when I see I have the resources and all these things worked out and everything will be taken care of he never operates like that he wants you to be obedient you do what you're supposed to do and then he will do what he promises to do look in verse 10 he says, bring the full tenth into the, where, into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. He said, bring everything that belongs to me to me so that I have everything 
that I have asked of you to do what I've asked you to do. So that, not that God couldn't supernaturally provide all the resources for the temple, but he asked his people, he says, I want you to give it. I want you to participate in this. I want you to show that you know that you are stewards of my resources and I have something I want to use the temple for and I'm asking you to give it so that now I have it to do. And he says, and, and the same way it is today, he's saying, I want you to give everything that I've asked you to give so that I have it to do what I propose to do. Not that I have to have what you have, but I want you to show that you know I'm God and you are not. And then he says, test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. That's an incredible statement. He's saying, test me. Put me to the test. We're, we're so, I, I think it's funny how often we try to protect God's reputation. As if God's reputation needed protected. As if God can't stand up for himself. But all throughout the word, God says, take a step of faith. I think that's why we're afraid to take a step of faith or even to encourage other people to take a step of faith. Because it's like, what if we encourage them to do it and then God doesn't do what he says he's going to do? And it fails. And then they're going to be like, oh, you were wrong. There is no God. And then it's, you know, if God asks you to do something, just do it. And if he fails... That's on him. That's not on you. You know? That's just... He's very capable of handling this. I've I've known this in my own personal experience. I can go to people and tell them God is real and say, if you put your faith in him, that he will be real to you. I've never had a person come back to me and go, I did what you said, and God failed. He wasn't real. It wasn't, no, never, I have never had that happen. Yet, every time I do it again anew, there's that little fear in the back of my head. What if he doesn't do it this time? What if this fails? And God is saying, just test, test me in this. Test me that if, I, that if you risk everything for me, that if you lay everything before me and say, God, I'm going to, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. For those of you who don't know my testimony, when I was 18, I was living a double life, living in two different directions. Well, let me first, let me throw this out here so you write it down or have it in your notes or whatever. Invest your life and resources in the ministry. That's, that's the point we're going to make here. And here's the story. I was living a double life. I was going to church and being a good Christian boy for my parents and for my own appearance sake, because I wanted to be a good Christian boy. But I didn't believe that's where my success was going to be. I believed my success was going to be in the things my friends were pursuing. I believed that in worldly pursuits, that if I wanted to get rich, if I wanted to have money, if I wanted to have power and success, that there was a plan I had to follow. So I've got this, this going over here to achieve my dreams, and this over here to keep God and my parents happy. It did not go well. And those two worlds began to collide. And it came to a point where I was afraid that this world was going to out me and mess up this world. And so I decided I'm going to end my life so that when I die, people will, the people that know and love me will think I died in an accident and this will be preserved. And they'll never know about this. That was how I reasoned that out. And so I planned it out. This is how I'm going to end my life. And is still as real to me today as it was then. It was I, I absolutely had it mapped out. It was very calculated, very carefully constructed. It would be a traffic accident. I was known for driving fast and so and recklessly. It wouldn't be a real stretch of the imagination. I knew a place that for sure would kill me if I was going too fast around this curve. And so I had to plan it out and so forth. And I remember getting ready to get in the car. And I got sick and I started. I just started throwing up just the thought of it. And in the midst of that, there was a voice. And the voice said, if you don't want your life, give it to me. 
And I can remember not thinking I was thinking that, but thinking, and I said, because I said, I responded to that voice and said, God, you don't want my life. I didn't get anything else beyond that. I'm now just talking, man. And then I just told him, I stood up and I said, you know what? You can have it. And it was not a, not a conciliatory, humble type moment. It was more of an angry, you know what? I'm just going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you and you do whatever you want to it. And I really believed in my mind I would not live another five years. But I, this is what I told God. I'm going to just start reading your word. And I'm going to do every single thing the Bible says. And this is how confused I was as a, as a teenager who grew up in church. I fully believe that a person who actually did what the Bible teaches couldn't live beyond 25 years old. That, that, that people would, would hate you and throw things at you and you're, you wouldn't have any friends and you, wouldn't, and you would be totally unsuccessful. You wouldn't be able to eat and you'd die a pauper or whatever. And I'm like, but I'm just going to do it. And, I, and, it was that, and so I would, the, from that point forward, I said, if I believe your word says it or I read it, I'm just going to get up and I'm going to do it exactly as I believe you instructed it. And this is what I discovered after, I don't know, 32 years later, however, going to add 33 years later, that was what he wanted the whole time. That was what he wanted the moment he called me in the first place. He wanted me just to do everything he said as he said it. I invested my life and everything I had into him. And he gave me back things that you can't even imagine and allowed me to be a part of things that I never thought I would be a part of. Some of which are here. Seven hundred and beyond. Jonathan, when he was little, I think it was him. He loves this example because I've used it before. I bought him a little truck. Somebody got it from him. I don't know. It came from Satan because it made obnoxious noises. I don't know if you ever had kids get gifts that made just the most obnoxious noises. But he had this little farm truck, and it was you push buttons on it, it made different sounds, little diesel sounds or whatever. And you push one, and it go, it's harvest time. Now I got that memorized. Because it would be over and over and over again. It's harvest time. It's harvest time. I'm trying to give you a picture here. You know, the kind of toy you want to find its way into the bottom of a river and never found again. But I, every time we get ready to start talking about sharing the gospel and promoting Jesus, that phrase gets caught in my head, and hopefully in yours now, that that's, that's what time it is. It is time for us to bring in a harvest that God intends for us to bring. Now, since I've been here, I'm going to grab a tissue. I want this not to start running down my face. You know. Since I've been here, this is, I don't know if, I mean, numbers or whatever they are. This is what I've been told about you all. We used to have 600 people here. Now, I'm just sticking with that because nobody has ever said you had 700. But you'd have presumably 600. If not for, I don't know how far along that lasts or whatever. But that, in the people's minds who are here, represents an era or a time when God was doing great things. And what happens a lot of times is we think back, remember back then, and we glorify the past and the past becomes the hero. And this is what I want you to think of now. I want you to think that God wants to bring in 700 people. And beyond. Now, I already told you how many number the numbers, that there's over 50,000 people out there. 80% of them want to come, and we just have to go find them. Look in verse 11 and 12. Look what God says. 
He says, I will, if we are doing, being faithful, doing what God wants, this is what he told his people. When you're obedient to me, these are the things that happen. He says, verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you. That's the enemy. The thing that's keeping us from growing, he says, I will rebuke that. I will keep whatever hinders you from growing, whatever keeps your crops from being successful, I will rebuke that for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. Now, how's that translate into Jackson, Missouri in today's world? God wants to show this community that his hand is at work, that he does great things. He wants to reveal his glory through these people. He wants people to see your life become something amazing. Maybe not financially successful, but blessed by the Lord, whatever that looks like. He wants to do something in your family's life so that people look at it and go, God is doing amazing things with your life. It may not be financial. It may be something completely different. But, he, but that's what the end word is going to be is that God looks at People look at it and go, God's, I don't know why, but God's doing amazing things through those people, in that family, through those families, in this church. He wants people in Jackson, Missouri, and even in Cape Girardeau to say, God is doing amazing things. Here's what we do. You're investing your life into what God wants. Now focus, focus on reaching at least one. One unchurched and one de-churched person this year. Now, Max Licato had a little saying that he used to use. He said, when fishermen don't fish, they fight. And he gives a story about going on a fishing trip and how it rained every day and how the first day they played games and they loved each other. The third day of rain, he said, my brother's socks smelled really bad. And I just noticed that people have very irritating things that they did. And he said, we, all, we hated each other within that trailer because we weren't doing what we went to do. And that's what happens in churches. We begin to get annoyed with each other just because we're focused on the wrong things. When you be focused on fishing. And each person in here has people that God has brought into your life. And this is, let me help you understand what unchurched and de-churched means. Unchurched means they've never been to church before. They're not a follower of Jesus Christ. They've never been a part of church before. Everybody in here, God is going to introduce to you somebody in your life that you know has never been in the church. Second type of person that you will introduce to is somebody who has been a part of the church at one point or another, but is no longer in the church. Now, this next few weeks, we're going to focus on unchurched people. We're going to focus on people who, they, they might have attended a church. I mean, they've never been a member of a church. They've never been baptized. Those are unchurched people. And so we're going to focus on reaching those people. Everybody's going to try to think of one person that they need to reach, and we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about that. Praying for them for 30 days. Praying for an opportunity to share the gospel. But the second person, we're gonna, in the fall, we're going to focus on a different type of person. That's a person who was in church, maybe was in this church, but is not in church anymore. And we qualify that by saying they have not been in church for the last six months. And if they say, I go to the Methodist church, but they haven't been to the Methodist church in six months, we're considering them open game. If the Methodist Church hasn't been able to get them back for six months, then they, they're open game. We can go after them. You can tell the Methodist Church, serve them warning. We're coming for your people. You go get them now, in six months we're going after them. And they can do the same. For, and if we haven't had people here in six months, then they, if you don't come for the next six months, I'm going to let the Methodists pursue you. I'm just going to, that's your warning. But here's the thing, that's where our focus needs to be. I'm reaching people. And then we can see that the money that we give to the cooperative program and the money that we give for the different ministries, as we begin to see that these, the money that we're investing as we give our money and our time and our resources, that it has the purpose of expanding the kingdom of God. That's what it should be used for. That's, that's when we become cheerful givers. We become cheerful givers when I believe my investment is now being used for the kingdom of God to bring more people into heaven. Because I'll tell you, the value of a soul 
It's worth everything I have. Because it was worth everything Jesus had. And I don't, I, I know, I understand. I wouldn't want to give it. I wouldn't want to give money to a church. I wouldn't want to give money to a ministry that just served itself. It just fed itself and and. But the resources should be used to train and equip our people to do ministry, to reach more people for the kingdom of God. And we need to be able to tie it to the mission of Christ. Taking his resources and seeing God do amazing things with it. it I mean, it's like that boy with the five loaves and two fishes. Can you imagine if Peter said, hey, can I have your lunch, kid? And he gave it to him, and if Peter just ate in front of him, ha, ha, I ate your food. That's not a good story, Right? But when you give it to Jesus, Jesus does great things. Here's what I want us to think of as we leave here today. Number one, I took in the ABCs of salvation and kind of put it into our invitation. First, admit. Admit we've been wrong. Admit we've been wrong. Now, let me help here. Everybody, in some way, form, or fashion, has done something wrong. So just be honest with that. Be. Believe Jesus can restore us. That if you did something wrong, it's not the end of the world. It's actually, it's a moment of recognizing Jesus can do something. If you don't need a savior, then how can he bring glory to himself by saving you? God has allowed you to see that you can't succeed in everything. God has allowed you to see that you can't be good at everything so that Jesus can be glorified, so that Jesus can come in and do something amazing in your life. And the greater, and Paul said this, the greater sin gap there is, the more of a fail you are, the more glory God gets. Don't go out on purpose and try to do awful things to see God restore you, but he knows where you are. And he can bring you back. And the C is just commit all you have to him. He's not asking you to go out and get more or do something that you haven't been given the ability to do. He's just saying what you do have the ability to do, the resources that you have, your gifts that you have, your skills that you have, your abilities you have, just give it all to him. And let him do something amazing with it. Pray with me. Father, we just thank you, God, for how great you are. Lord, may we give all that we have to you. so that you can do all that you can through us. But we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? We have this time invitation. Just want to invite you to come. If you want to publicly commit yourself to Christ this morning, maybe you're a follower of Christ, but you haven't been giving yourself to him, and you just want to publicly say, I want to give myself, then you can come. If you want to pray, just pray that prayer, the altar, then we want to make this altar available to you. But however God is leading you respond this morning, this invitation is just open to you to get right with God as we sing.